many people don't know, but if we wouldn't have any satellites in orbit, our society would just crash today even. Not, not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, but today. Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators. Brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Welcome to Mostly Awesome. Our guest today is Daniel Metzler, co-founder and CEO of ESA Aerospace. Daniel studied mechanical engineering at TU Wien in his bachelor's and then moved to Munich to pursue a master's degree in aerospace engineering at TUM. During his studies at TUM, he joined a rocket technology initiative, VAR, where he met his future co-founders Josef Fleischmann and Markus Brandl. With a VAR spin-off project, the team was accepted to the Business Incubation Center of the European Space Agency. There, they tested the first prototypes for engine components and attracted first investors. They also took part in Unternehmertum's Expreneurs program and their first engine components were built in the high-tech makerspace in Garching. In March 2018, at the age of 26 years, Daniel founded ESA Aerospace Technologies GmbH together with Markus and Josef. At ESA Aerospace, they built sustainable satellite launch vehicles that are smaller, less expensive and more sustainable than existing ones. ESA Aerospace is a very visionary company aiming at improving life on Earth. No matter if you are a space expert or a novice, stay tuned for some exciting insights from Daniel. But before we get started, let me briefly walk you through what we talked about with Daniel. We start off by learning about what led Daniel into the aerospace industry and what made him realize that he wanted to found a startup in this space. In the second block, we talked more specifically about his founding experiences. Namely, what his fears were when founding an aerospace, what he learned from other companies, and what the rocket prototyping process looks like. Finally, Daniel made a point on why space technology is so relevant and shared his thoughts on how the future might look like in this area. Daniel inspired with his great passion for and deep knowledge about space, but also his courage and grit to found in this area. So, without further ado, let's welcome Daniel Metzler. We're excited to have him on our podcast today. Thank you, Daniel, for being here. Let's jump right into it. You seem to be deeply passionate about space. And let us start off by asking where does this passion come from? It's a good question, actually. I, I was always and I've been always fascinated by anything that flies, whether it's aircraft, whether it's spacecraft, whether it's rockets. And so my passion just, just in principle went for, for anything that goes up in the skies. When you then although compare actually the aircraft to the rockets, it's just a different beast. And so when you go 28,000 kilometers compared to 800 kilometers per hour, the, the difference is definitely there. The, the challenge for engineering definitely is there in space. You can even see the, the satellites orbiting Earth when it's a non-cloudy day and you just look up and you see basically the small dots moving around at 20,000 kilometers per hour. I think that's just quite fascinating. And then obviously this is around everything that, that is space for the benefit of Earth. But then obviously what's also super interesting, everything that's exploration related. So really taking a rocket and flying just into the deep uh, space, into the unknown, really trying to find out actually where are we even, where do we come from? So yeah, it's just a super interesting science and, and, and industry. Mm. So very, very often these childhood dreams are then sort of burst once you really get into it. 
for you, this does not seem like it was the case. Um, actually, you joined a rocket uh, technology initiative at TUM, the WAR. Would you maybe like to talk a bit about your biggest learnings there? Yeah, sure. So when I joined VAR, actually, I had absolutely zero clue about rockets. But it's basically there really when I got to put all of the all of the theoretical things that you learn at the university at, at uni courses into application. When you actually start to, for example, develop and calculate sonic rockets, rocket engines, etc., that you actually really get into the field very deeply yourself. And uh, there I also met my two co-founders. And actually, I would say about the first almost 15 people of ESAR were part of the VAR group, which was first fascinating because we basically already knew the, the team basically for, for quite a few years at that time. And so we knew exactly also what we could expect from different people, where we have different technology roadmaps uh, made structures or overall vehicle design made be in specific component development such as rocket engines and so basically VAR really i think was was a very very valuable experience again you, you just get to put your theoretical learnings into practice and i think that is definitely one of the most important things to not just go to university, go study just the theoretics, but see what you can actually do with the things that you learn. Yeah, so actually I was at Tum once and saw a pitch stand of war. We kind of had a quick chat with them. For you going into the project there, was it just curiosity and like, hey, wow, they're building rockets, let's check it out? Or did you already have like this bigger picture in mind of saying, no, like this is what I want to pursue as a career as well? So I was just curious, actually. So I did my bachelor's degree in Vienna. And when I came to Munich, I basically didn't know a single person living in Munich. And so I, I just took a look around. And, and all of the research groups at the at TUM are very, very high profile, I would say, also looking back. And I just took a look at, at the formula student teams, at the space groups, at the aero groups. So basically, one's building sailing aircraft. And so really what fascinated me just the most was at the end, the, the rockets and, and the space technology. And so then I basically joined from my almost very first day on that I've been to Munich and I've had a very, very good time since then there. Cool. So when was this turning point that you realized, actually, there's, I want to do more with this and I rather want to found a startup in, the, in this domain with the knowledge that you've kind of gained there at war? Uh, it was actually an external input. So basically, there were first European companies who wanted to develop orbital rockets. They just messaged us at VAR and said, hey, guys, can we buy your rocket engines? And we just asked ourselves, why the heck would you want to buy a rocket engine from a bunch of students, basically? But then we really started to, to take a bit of a look. I mean, the idea of actually spinning off some of the technologies that have been developed at VAR over the course of the past 60 years has always been there. But really, there was kind of that ignition spark uh, was missing. And I think really those um, two requests actually that we got both within a few weeks of each other from the industry was one of the turning points where we said, hey, actually, let's take a closer look at this. Uh, there might be something uh, that we're onto. And then we started just taking a look at the global space industry. I mean, we've been following SpaceX and, and the likes uh, a lot in the but what we saw also was in Europe, there was barely any innovation done in the space industry for the past 30 years. And so we figured either also after we graduate university, we go to one of the established satellite builders because at that time also the European rocket builders were not hiring. 
because we were not U.S. citizens, we were legally not allowed to work on the U.S. rocket companies. And so then the other possibility would have been to switch industry completely, which also we didn't want to do. So we said, hey, what's the chances of actually raising 100 million euros and building a rocket company ourselves? That's super cool. And it already brings us actually to our second block, ESA Aerospace. And in 2018, together with two other TUM students, as you already mentioned, you co-founded ESA Aerospace as a spin-off from the work group. So what were your biggest fears with regards to entering the aerospace industry? So I think really the biggest fear was, are we able to raise 100 billion euros? Really, when, when you take a look at, especially even just three years ago, when we started talking to venture capital investors, they took a look at us with a very weird set of eyes and asked basically whether we smoked some weed or what, but when we told them we want to build an orbital rocket company. And investing into the space industry in Europe already just three years ago was an absolute no-go. So there was barely any investor who even knew that there's also commercial space industry and not governmentally driven. So that was really the, the biggest topic. And we actually thought a lot about making this aerospace in the US just because of the funding. But then we met very, very cool venture capital investors from B Squared Ventures, Deep Tech Venture Fund based in, as well as Bill and Altan, a 12 year SpaceX veteran who actually also studied at TUM. And so both together with them and also then Unternehmertum Venture Capital, we started in uh, mid-2018 with our seed round. And basically the, the challenge that we set ourselves was just, okay, the best, or we're basically only going to find out whether we can actually raise the money or not if we try it. And so they supported us with a single digit million seed round and we started basically off building that. But really, I think the biggest fear was not even technological. I think we've always known that we're going to make the tech work. It's really just, are we actually able to, to get the funding to actually develop it? Do you think with your example, kind of as a lead, lead example, did this change now? Are there now more investors curious into investing into space technology and the aerospace market? Yeah, very, very much so. I, I think the space industry, if you take a look at the US, US market, for example, there's barely any investor who has not done uh, space investment. In Europe, the attraction is taking up more and more. Even if we take a look at our own investors, there are investors who have never ever before invested in just even hardware. And so basically when you go from software to hardware, you're here and then rockets are probably here. And so this is really though what what is driving also a lot of other investors when they see that some of the leading European venture capital investors, such as Early Bird or Lakestar, actually get into the space industry, even though it's a field they've never invested into before, the others basically are, are drawn to it as well. And so what we see now really much over the course of the past one and a half to two years is a very vibrant and flourishing space industry that's commercially driven in Europe. And we're also more and more venture capitalists actually being funded into. Yeah. So, I mean, we frequently hear the phrase hardware is hard. Uh, this is already kind of what you said. Like rocket, of course, is at the very end of hardware. So how do you actually start prototyping a rocket? 
It's a good question, actually. So basically, you, I mean, it's with any very, very complex part, product, or component. You just break it down into a lot of smaller things and then tackle just each challenge, each problem, each component, each subsystem of the rocket one by one. And so we already in the beginning realized the propulsion system was going to be one of the most challenging ones, although it was also the field where we had the most experience in developing rocket engines at VAR already. Still, it was a different animal that we're building now at ESAR. And so we just, for roughly about, for, from the first 20 employees we had at ESAR, I would guess about 15 or so, if not even more, uh, were just working on propulsion. And so you, yeah, you just break it down. You do a lot of simulations, uh, you do a lot of calculations, but then again, we're driven by actually prototyping and going into hardware as fast as you possibly can. Because also, as you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you get, uh, when simulating, you get some nice, beautiful colored pictures, but you still have not too much confidence possibly into the results. And you anyway have to actually confirm them in tests. So why not just basically do the bare minimum of simulations and then go directly into hardware and into prototyping. And so about a year ago, we really started to go a lot from, so basically after about one and a half years of development, we started to actually take the simulations, the overall vehicle designs and actually get into, into prototyping. We figured fairly quickly that it's not as easily done with external manufacturers as we wanted to. So we also started to build up our in-house manufacturing. And uh, over the course of the past 12 months, uh, we've built up our 4,000 square meter production facilities with now almost 30 employees, purely just in manufacturing and prototyping to actually build. I mean, this kind of sounds also like the journey of SpaceX, no? They also, I think, then also did all the manufacturing in-house. Do you like kind of see SpaceX as a reference and kind of try to get some learnings uh, from them to apply to your own company? I think we'd be stupid if we didn't take any learnings from it, both from the successes and from the failures that SpaceX had. For sure. I mean, for us, the, the big driver in that case was also to not have any tech dependence. That was for us one of the main mantras basically already early on um, to say we don't want to be 100% dependent on any external either company or even There's rocket companies who, for example, procure the entire propulsion system. And from, in, in that case, the European East Bloc. In that case, I just don't want to be dependent on the political relationship between Germany's chancellor and maybe a country such as Ukraine. And that was really just the driver also for us to say, let's develop the entire technology stack internally from the software with which we design our parts, such as turbo machinery and the entire rocket engine cycle, for example also the entire launch vehicle simulation, up to really going into manufacturing, doing the testing ourselves. So we really build up the actual know-how and don't really uh, create any dependence. And with that also, we, we decided to take the manufacturing in-house because also it was the only way how we can actually control and get the full know-how. Otherwise also on manufacturing side, we would still just be dependent on anyone else. Mm -hmm. And Then again, when you go, the closer you get to actually building the vehicle, the more you also learn about your vehicle, the more changes are also coming in. And if you're just based on external manufacturers and you want to change some designs, it's very time costly, I would say. And so it just provides us a lot of flexibility. Mm. You sound really passionate about the technology itself, but you already mentioned that Aerospace is quite a political thing as well. And knowing that you come from Austria, as I do, 
I'm just curious, how do you feel about founding a company that um, potentially is like getting huge that is not in your home country? I'm actually not too much attached just on uh, on a specific country within Europe, I would say. Mm -hmm. I think in Europe in general, we have to think way more on the European level because especially in the aerospace industry, if you take a look at France, Germany, Italy, even the UK, for example, each one of the countries is way too small to try even to, to compete uh, with the US, with China, with India. There's just the, the markets in, the, in itself is just too small, but especially also the political commitment to say, look, let's actually fund, fund um, a, a lot of new space programs. Mm -hmm. If you compare the US space spendings compared to entire Europe, the US is spending about five times more, which is actually quite interesting because in military side is just a factor of four. So in space, we're spending even less compared to the US than even in the defense sector. And uh, that is something where I really say, I don't mind to be honest, whether we build a company within Germany, within France, uh, within Sweden, we actually have now also a team of about 20 people in Sweden. But really, I think in Europe, we definitely need to think more on the European level and don't get attached too much to the actual um, borders mm. between. The yeah, totally agree. Why, why Sweden? Just out of curiosity. So we actually wanted to, to find a suitable spot for testing our rocket engines. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they're super loud. So it's roughly about <laughs> the, the, the soundness level of a fighter jet aircraft. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to find a suitable spot. Unfortunately, in Germany, we just failed the German bureaucracy. It took us about two and a half years to just get an offer from, for a potential test site. And within Sweden, the Swedish Space Corporation, so basically the company running the Swedish space program, was super fast. There's already an established site for launching sounding rockets, launching high altitude balloons. And within just a few weeks, we basically came to an agreement of testing our rocket engines there at a fraction of the cost um, and time also of what we would have been able to do it within Germany. And so in that case, we just built the entire test site in, Germany, in uh, Sweden. And for us, basically also being a privately funded company, we can do those things which the established space industry in Europe cannot. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of regulations and policies around where you can actually spend your money. And so, for example, if Germany and Italy are spending a specific amount of money on certain programs within the European space industry, ESA also has to get the contracts back to those countries. And so, for example, if Bulgaria is uh, contributing a specific part to a component uh, or to a program within the European Space Agency, it actually is, is quite a challenging task because it might just happen that there's not even a Bulgarian company who actually has the skills for that specific program. Same goes for Germany, France, Italy, basically all European um, um, space agency member states countries. And so that is a huge asset that we have that we can just basically do whatever we want to do. Yeah, maybe quickly touching upon also the German bureaucracy that you mentioned before. How well did the spin-off process go um, from having like this, gaining this knowledge at TUM, but then starting your own company? Was there any constraints on on what technology you can use and what technology you can't use? No, not at all, actually, because the systems we develop at ESAR are completely different uh, to those that we developed at TUM. So it's not that we took out any IP or anything. 
but it was really we just took the learnings and the know-how we gained over the course of the past few years to apply it to a completely new product at, at ESR. And so the I would say the underlying physics obviously is the same, but really what we do with it on uh, how we build it, for example, the rocket engines we built at TUM were hybrid rocket engines. Now we're building liquid rocket engines where both of the propellants are liquid um, and just the entire design of it is inherently different. And so there wasn't really any issue on, on spinning that off from TUM. Okay, then I'm curious because in one in, uh, one of your interviews, um, you said that like traditionally the typical price for a satellite launch is between 30,000 and 40,000. So, and you are aiming to go in the direction of $10,000 uh, per kilogram. So kind of what makes uh, your rocket so different that you can achieve that price? I think if you are building three rockets per year, hand assembled and only actually manufactured upon contract, you will never be able to actually do something very cost efficiently. So when we started with ESAR, we took a look and said, hey, how can we really drive down the cost? And one of the main aspects was automation. So really automating a lot of the production processes, which in turn already means you have to design your parts so you can actually manufacture them automated. Our entire structures of our rocket are fully automated in the production. The majority of our propulsion system of our rocket engines are automated production um, in terms of additive uh, or with the help of additive manufacturing. So, for example, our rocket engine combustion chamber is a very, very complex part in itself. A lot of cooling channels. The geometry itself is very complex. In classical manufacturing, it takes roughly about one and a half years just to manufacture a single rocket engine combustion chamber. With the processes we have right now at ESAR, it takes us about one and a half weeks. And so there's really a lot of technologies that we basically take from other industries, from also especially the automotive industry, um, and apply it to the products we build at ESAR to really have cost as one of the main drivers of the entire development that we do. Mm. Um, I mean, you're you're still, since it's such a complex product, more on the technology side, I assume. But we always ask our guests to ask a question to the next guest. And our last guest was actually the CEO of Allianz Technology. And he had a question for you, which was, what are you doing to keep customer obsession high in your company? Um, I think the requests from the industry are so, so high that because basically our customers Right now, it's super hard for them to even get a cost efficient, but especially a launch at a specific time to a specific orbit. And mm -hmm. so our customers are basically already now piling up a lot and waiting for us to actually finish the development. And we're targeting our first flight next year. And so really we're working very hard to just basically get our rocket to orbit so we can transport our customer satellites. I think just the, the Technology leaps that have been happening in the satellite industry over the course of the past five to 10 years have been amazing. And so really anyone can order satellite components online in online shops as of today, basically, and just basically click together a, a small CubeSat satellite that's full functional satellite to do a specific task in orbit. And so really, I think with the lower boundaries or with, with the with the lower entry barriers to the space industry there's a lot more space companies and satellite companies popping up literally every single day on a global scale and they're just waiting to get their their ride share opportunities or their launch opportunities so yeah i think 
the product we're building is fitting very well the market. So going up to a thousand kilograms of payload capability, that's really what is, I'd say also from a service point of view, quite unique. In Europe, there's no such vehicle. In the US, there's also actually no such vehicle. There are a few under development, but really when we see where all of our customers are going in terms of satellite platforms they're building, we're basically hitting the bullseye with the vehicle that we're building right now. And so we're just working on getting our vehicle to fly and the customers are already there just because they need a right to orbit with their small satellites. And um, that already brings us to our next block. Um, so in an interview at TUM, you mentioned that without satellites, we would not know that the sea levels are rising a little bit every year. Can you elaborate a bit on how space technologies and satellite data can help us improve life on Earth today? So I think many, many people don't know, but if we wouldn't have any satellites in orbit, our society would just crash today even. Not, not tomorrow, not the day after tomorrow, but today. It's, I, I would say, almost small things that everyone takes for granted, such as GPS. At every second on your phone, you have satellite data updated from a minimum four satellites to actually determine for you where you are. With, without GPS, I mean, there's a lot of systems not working from an ATM up to the entire navigation, the entire air traffic. Things such as, for example, also air traffic um, control and air traffic surveillance we do with uh, satellites. So without satellites, there's also no air traffic. There's no maritime business because also the maritime industry and, and ships are basically just using satellites to, on one side, actually navigate, but on the other side to also determine the best routes based on currents in the sea. And if you just choose the wrong, the wrong route and you actually get into a strong current, it might just may happen that a shipment from uh, Asia to Europe, for example, is not taking two weeks, but maybe four weeks. And so there's also kind of a, a lot of industrial topics where, where space technology comes in. Uh, what's very important, actually, though, is also the entire climate change topic. We wouldn't know about climate change if it weren't for satellites. I mean, as I mentioned, why or how do we even know that the sea level is rising? It's not that you take a ruler, stand in the port of Venice and actually measure every day. Oh, now we're up at like 0.00001 millimeter. But it's actually the satellites that give us an, an overview of the entire globe. Similar goes for water usage, CO2 emissions, methane emissions. Methane, for example, is a transparent and odorless gas. You cannot see it, but it's actually quite uh, dangerous for your health. And so satellites provide us the technologies and, and the services so we can, for example, monitor oil pipelines, really enable us to fight climate change with actual data and not just assumptions that we make. Yeah. But I mean, the, the GPS system and like several other satellites are already uh, in place and in space. So kind of what are the new satellites that you are sending up now? Who are the customers who now demand to have more satellites in, in space? So a lot of the satellites that are being put into space right now are for internet connectivity. So by the end of this year, the first services will go live with really high speed, high bandwidth internet directly from space. So the same as you get television into your home right now, you will also get 150 megabit per second internet into your home just with a small antenna basically the size of, of, a, of a pizza basically. And This in itself, I think, is already a massive, massive leap in technology because 
as of today, 4 billion people, so about 50% of the entire world's population does not have internet access. So imagine what you can do by connecting um, the second half of Earth's population to the internet, an entire continent such as Africa, for example, where you don't have too much of ground infrastructure. You don't need to bury any copper cables into the ground, but you basically just beam the internet right down from the satellite into the homes, into schools, into institutions, to science and research labs. And I think that in itself is probably what's going to be one of the biggest, biggest technological drivers in the world, I would almost say. It's probably also one of the most aggressive potential business cases um, that there is. I mean, imagine selling internet to 4 billion people. I think there's a a lot of good things uh, that we can do with just connecting people. It sounds a lot like you're driven by improving the life. However, we know that many space companies are also looking into traveling to other planets for touristic reasons, for example. How do you envision a future scenario for the space industry? I think the majority definitely goes towards improving life on Earth. It's Mm -hmm. something where people are usually not always too fond of, but really we go to space to make sure that we provide certain services on Earth to improve improve life in every single continent, in every single area of our globe. On the other side, I, I still think it's just a human curiosity that gets us looking also not just back on Earth with our satellites, but also towards the outside and actually make uh, exploration missions towards the moon, towards Mars, possibly even further. So I, I think that is then really just the curiosity about where do humans even come from? Where does life come from? actually taking a look at the universe and seeing how did the universe 13.8 billion years look like and the only way to find out is actually to look into the distance to also look into into the past and see what might have been happening almost 14 billion years ago so is this something you're also considering at ESA aerospace to send a rocket into deep space I'm very, very sure that those missions will follow at some point, definitely. We're, although again, we're, we're commercially driven, so we also have to serve our, our direct customers, mostly of whom are, are also, again, commercial companies and commercial satellite builders. But then again, we're also in contact with all of the space agencies, both within and across Europe, but also outside. And so there's also a lot of science missions over the course of the next 10 years that will need to have a launch. So. I'd say there's definitely a good chance that we will also send deep space probes to maybe another planet or maybe in in, in real deep space. At this point, I just need to ask, do you want to go to space yourself? Are there any plans made already? There's no plans made already. I think really right now we're we're focusing on on getting our rockets up into orbit. But hey, we'll we'll see what the future brings. I see there's a lot of movement going on right now in the in the space travel industry as well. So uh, there's the first US company to actually get also an FAA license to fly people into space. Again, I would definitely want to go orbital and not just suborbital. I, I think it's just a, a different uh, a different experience whether you just kind of scratch at the surface of, of space at 100 kilometers in altitude and then fly back on Earth or whether you actually go uh, with almost 30,000 kilometers per hour and orbit Earth every 90 minutes. That sounds so cool. So actually circling uh, back, so in aerospace technology, 
mistakes are actually extremely costly. I mean, now we're talking about sending rockets to orbital, suborbital space, but also just like building them back here, uh, prototyping. So we were wondering, is there actually room for mistakes at either aerospace? And if so, how do you turn them then into new opportunities? There definitely isn't. I think it has to be. What we also tell our engineers, design your systems as cost efficiently such that you don't get attached to hardware. If you're building a specific component that costs hundreds of thousands of euros or even millions of euros, you will always make sure that that specific components never get touched without any gloves and, and it's just treated super carefully. But if you come up with a design where the component just costs maybe 50 euros or 100 euros and you basically break it, you just go build another one because you just don't get attached to it. And so I think just having the entire cost efficiency in mind at all times is super important. But then again, I think you learn most out of actual failures, which doesn't mean you need to either copy failures from others, which is just stupidity, or actually do the same, the same mistakes yourself over and over again with, with expectation to, to expect different results. But really making errors is nothing bad in itself at all. I think we learn from it and we actually progress a lot faster than just trying out many, many things. Yeah. So how do you account for these errors on a business uh, side of level? So you said you wanted, like your goal was to reach $100 million of funding. I think you, you, I think we, you raised a round of 91. So that's very close to that number, actually. How, like, how, how can you account for these mistakes given that their margin can be so like it can be a very big mistake costing a lot of money or not not so much instead yeah. i think i mean it depends very much on on which level the errors have are happening if we blow up a rocket engine on the test rig and the entire test rig goes with it or if we blow up the rocket on the launch pad and the entire launch pad goes with it it definitely is a setback both time wise but especially also financial so those are definitely the cases where you really want to be sure that things are working smoothly in specific component developments, in prototyping, they're really, again, you, you have to just design such that failure can happen. And I wouldn't say it should happen, but it's definitely not a bad thing. If you just reiterate three, four, five times, sometimes even 25 times on a specific component, because you can also spend so much time on just simulation at the end of the day, after let's say two years of development time, you first time for the first time going to manufacturing and you realize hey, it's actually a nice part in theory, but I cannot even manufacture it. So you basically just spend two years for nothing. You have to go back to the drawing board, redesign completely. But when you think of early prototyping, very, very early on, you actually put a first uh, demonstrator into hardware. You learn from also the manufacturing processes and uh, basically take it already into the early designs. And this is also one of the reasons why we have our in-house manufacturing. We can just try out a lot of things um, have the engineers very close to the shop floor to make sure that also the design engineers are very, very close um, to the to the actual manufacturing and prototyping. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably my engineering background, but I think it's super cool what you do that is aerospace and kind of this hardware approach as well. Yet currently developing software solutions is actually one of the more popular entrepreneurial areas just because the initial hurdles are way, way lower. So what can be done in your perspective so that the startup landscape can also have more companies like ESA Aerospace 
yeah like how how would you motivate our listeners to kind of explore these uh, opportunities as well I mean, also our engineers are, are basically doing software all day long and, and, and creating software. But really, when it gets towards the, the entrepreneurial part and actually funding companies, I, we've always asked ourselves, kind of, or I would ask those people, what is holding you back of actually, I don't know, building an airplane or building, uh, building a hardware product? I, I mean, we're living in an analog world, and I love that at the end of the day, you can actually touch and see what you have created over the course of the past day or weeks or sometimes even years. And I think just hardware is something that fascinates people. Although I definitely see the, the big, big potential in, in software, at the end of the day, if every single person in the globe would just do software, what would you eat every day? What, how, with which car would you actually drive to either university or to your workplace? And so I think, the hardware part we can never leave out. And I'd say the hurdles are sometimes just in development timelines and, and because basically it's easier or mostly faster um, to develop software than hardware. But then on the other side also, I, I think people should go after what they just really like to do. And if it's building a hardware product, then you should build a hardware product, no matter how hard it is. I mean, as I said, it's, it's called hardware because it's hard but it's also very, very rewarding. And when we see a rocket lift off from our launch pads, I would never want to go back and, and take the decision differently of building a software company. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. Still, I feel like, and this is more of a personal question, but I feel like it takes a lot of courage um, to stand there and say, like, I'm building a rocket now. So how do you handle probably a lot of comments that are saying like, are you crazy? This will never work. I mean, if you ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm. In, in that case, well, either we, we don't get to actually develop the rocket because we, for example, wouldn't have gotten the funding. In that case, well, probably we would have looked towards either building another venture or actually working maybe in, in another startup or company. But really, when you take a look at the worst case scenario, if it does not work out, it's oftentimes way less dramatic than what it might look like in the very beginning. And so think very hard about what is actually the worst case that can possibly happen. Maybe you lose a few thousand euros, uh, maybe even, even a bit more. You might lose a lot of time, but in that case still, you would have gained a lot of experience, which will probably shape your way going forward as well. So I always ask myself, what if or what if not? And, and basically just see um, how those two scenarios would play out. I would say this is awesome last words for, for this block. So let's move on to a more practical toolbox. We would like to give our listeners some tools from you on the way. So as a first question, what is a book that everyone should read? Hmm. To be honest, I don't think there's a very, very specific book um, that everyone should read. I think, especially for example, in the entrepreneurial world, there's a lot of books where a lot of the comments are basically quite repetitive. I mean, there's, there's definitely a good one, which is, for example, zero to, from zero to one from Peter Thiel. Again, just reading from a lot of experienced entrepreneurs, I would always want to read basically from entrepreneurs themselves. So people who have been there, who have been in those shoes. But I, th I think it's, a, again, a very personal topic on, on 
how you spend your time reading books. I myself, I would actually love to read more even. But then again, when I have the decision between taking a very close look at some system on a rocket and reading a book, I would always take the rocket part. Getting, getting the, the initial entrepreneurial spirit, I think there's a lot of good books around, um, but I would definitely suggest um, to take it from people who've actually started and built their own companies before. Mm -hmm. Nice. An app everybody should download. An app that should, everyone should download. I mean, for some, it's something like if you don't have time to actually read through the books, you can go for Blinkist. <laughs> and actually, basically, just, just draw the, the summaries of it. What I just love to use is very simple, but it's my notes app on my, on my phone. I just love at 3 a.m. in the morning when I wake up, I have an idea. I just take notes. It's, it might be a very, very small and simple tool, but it helps me also keep my thoughts organized. Nice. Do you have a podcast that you love listening to? I'm very, very much looking forward to who you're going to have on CDTM in the future. Um, <laughs> On, on this podcast. Um, I like Handel's, uh, Handel's Blood Disrupt as well. So taking a very holistic approach on also industry topics, political topics sometimes even. Do you have a routine that you follow? Get up. I, I would almost say early, but I'm not too much of the early, per, early bird person. Get up, I would say a reasonable time in the morning and then go back to sleep quite late. I usually tend to just be an office person or be in a manufacturing hall as I'm right now. Yeah. So I think there's not, not a specific routine. I think especially when you build your own company, there's not a single day which is repetitive. You're doing different things over and over again. What I just love to do is yeah, really talk to a lot of people. And, and really, my almost I would say my, my only routine is having a very, very regular check-in with my team from, from my direct reports up to everyone that is working here in manufacturing and testing, etc. And the last one for our toolbox, who is an innovator everybody should know? I definitely think everyone should know Elon Musk. I would say, I would say almost an obvious question uh, or obvious answer, but I've, I've learned that actually there's not too many people in this world who, who are aware of actually what he's done so far. I think a lot of, for example, the entire, I would say almost new space industry or, or revival of the, of the commercial space industry is based on the success of SpaceX. And so I think there's definitely a lot to learn about being brave and just building a company when everyone in the entire world said it's not going to work. Okay, thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you so much for all the insights that you um, provided here. It was super cool to talk to you. So actually, we also want to give you the chance to ask a question to our next guest. She's uh, Caroline Weimann, founder of Joint Politics. Um, they encourage more people to go into the entrepreneurial space around politics. So do you have any question for Caroline? Mm, I would ask her... What if there is one thing, like one law or one thing that you can change in politics? So basically, if you're a chancellor for a single day, what is the thing that you would do first? Nice. That's a very good question. We make sure um, to ask her that. And yeah, with that being said, thanks again for being here. I think yeah, a lot to, a lot to uh, take away. And yeah. Thank you so much, Daniel. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So Lisa, what did you learn in this episode? 
Yeah, so what I found most, most interesting was this whole space industry in Europe topic, because I had no idea that it was so hard and that before he started, there was basically no option to do his job in Europe, but that he would have had to go to the US. And then generally these space-specific problems, such as going to Sweden for launching because of noise and, and this kind of stuff was yeah really new to me. And I think this also leads me to the point that I felt like he just has a lot of courage to be there and just decide if if there's no space industry in Europe, then let's create it. So this was really cool, I think. Yeah, I think I love that mentality that he says, uh, I don't have to go to the US, let's stay in Europe, and that he doesn't see the borders that tightly. Like, I mean, he is from Austria, but still mm. he says, okay, we have if we want to pull it off, then we have to do it together as kind of Europe. And I think that's something super important anyway, that we kind of see this power that we have as, as Europe. Yeah, so that was very inspiring. And also uh, having that courage to do a hardware business. I mean, it's like it requires a lot of funding. It also requires a lot of like experience from the first hand. And I think this is something he gained at TUM through studies and then also mm. meeting his co-founders through these projects. I think that's a very cool journey kind of to mm. see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, on your on your political point, I thought that it was really interesting that space is also such a bureaucratic and political space to be in. I, I think that was really cool. Also, leading us to, to the next guest, uh, who will be Caro Weimann. On the topic of politics, she's the co-founder of Join Politics, and we will finally discuss the last topic that is still missing in our season, which is politics. And we're really looking forward to that episode. Stay tuned for it. And lastly, of course, as always, huge thank you to the team behind this podcast, who is Maria doing the content, Annalena doing the marketing, Freddie doing the vision of the podcast, and Keke doing the editing. Thank you so much. Without um, these people, it wouldn't be possible. And as always, if you have any feedback for the team or for us, feel free to reach out to podcast at cdtm.de. And with that being said, see you in two weeks. <laughs>